what, what came up on your Google, for example, Google search on your first page, is the past that we don't want to see anymore. Uh, but we cannot ignore it, it is there. And uh, I think as, a, as an industry, we have to look at it and say, you know, have the balls to say that was not good. And we must, must improve. I think there's been a huge improvement, massive improvement, yeah. uh, in my lifetime anyway, and in my father's lifetime, sadly no longer with us, but he would, if he were here, he would back me up on this. But we have still got a heck of a long way to go. Welcome to the Burnt Chef Journal a podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma within worldwide hospitality, as well as inspiring people to make changes within their lives, their businesses, and with their leadership skills. This week, we are going to be replaying a panel discussion that we had back at the hotel, restaurant, and catering show. Our guests for that were Adam Bateman, Ruth Hansom, and Michelle Rue Jr. and of course myself. So I hope that you enjoy it. It was a lot of conversation around kitchen culture and progressive movements and I think that it'll be a really, really good one to, to share with you today. So without further ado, let's get going. Anybody's been to a few of these now, that will you now be used to that noise as you enter the uh, we start the session. So this is going to be an amazing conversation. We're going to be talking about the shift in kitchen cultures, and every single person on this stage has got an, inv an investment in that as a process. And you'll see on the screen that originally it was just going to be the four of us, but this morning I bumped into Chris and we got chatting, and I said, you know what, you got to be on this conversation. So <laughs> it's what we do. We change it as we go along. It is the easiest answer. So. If we can go down the line, and you just give people a brief introduction to yourself, and then we'll kind of we'll just start chatting. So I guess you don't really need any introduction, Michelle, but go for it. Tell the people who you are and what you're all about. Uh, well, I, I wonder every morning. Sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and I think, who the hell is he? <laughs> uh, and I ask myself that question. But at the end of the day, I am a chef, uh, and uh, people might think I am a celebrity chef. I hate that moniker. Uh, I am first and foremost somebody that just loves cooking. Uh, and uh, I love the hospitality industry. So that's really who I am in a nutshell. I love the idea you're waking every morning asking the big questions. I do. I do. <laughs> who am I? Shit. <laughs> well, I struggle to wake up in the mornings. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually ask myself any big questions. I just try and get to work on time. So I'm Adam Bateman. I'm a culinary director at a hotel in the Birmingham called The Grants. Uh, my name is Chris Hall. I run a non-for-profit organisation called the Burnt Chef Project. It's a project designed to provide the tools, the education and the support mechanisms to improve the health and well-being within international hospitality industry. And I'm Ruth Hansom, head chef at the Princess of Shoreditch. Hello. <laughs> I got loud. Good kids. <laughs> so let's dig straight in. Um, as I was thinking and preparing for this conversation, um, I did a little Google search and I started off with the idea. I googled, is kitchen life good? I'm not going to lie to you, the first page of results didn't really support the argument that it was. <laughs> is history, and this is a question for me now, is history one of the challenges that we're facing when it comes to is kitchen life good? What do you think, Michelle? Yeah, I think you're right, absolutely, and even more so now at the moment. Um, and we have to, you know, maybe draw inspiration on history but some of the past some of what has been well what came up on your google for example google search on your first page is the past that we don't want to see anymore uh, but we cannot ignore it it is there and uh, i think as a as an industry we have to look at it and say you know have the balls to say that was not good and we must must improve I think there's been a huge improvement, massive improvement, yeah. uh, in my lifetime anyway, and in my father's lifetime, sadly no longer with us, but he would, if he were here, he would back me up on this. But we have still got a heck of a long way to go. Without doubt. Yeah, yeah I, I think his, the key word there was historic, right? History, history is in the past, and I think, agree that we weren't great, and our industry had its issues and had its problems, but we've done a lot for the future to change that. We still need to, there's still a long way to go, right? But we are definitely making inroads into making those changes. So hopefully in a few years, our history will be better than our history is now. 
kind of, when you think about history, my own personal history, so you are all very talented people. I spent two years doing uh, old school City and Guild, 706. Mm. Um, and at the end of that 706, I kind of walked away with the mouth of a really noisy chef who <laughs> thought he was loud, <laughs> funny, and loved to swear but just a tiny modicum of the challenge. So that history told me, the self-awareness at that moment told me that was not the place for me to be. Yeah. Um, Chris, what do you think? Where, where, where are we at with this? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen some incredible developments over the last, sort of, even just the last five years. The industry as a whole has changed rapidly. There are still pockets where it, it hasn't changed and there's no easy solution. There's no easy fix for it. I mean, ultimately we need to be educating from not just catering college level, but school level as well. Like we need to be promoting this as a profession of choice first and foremost. But we also need to be providing our leadership teams with the tools and resources they need to implement change and to start to challenge behaviors. Because I do believe that everyone has a propensity to change. Despite how you might have run businesses or teams in the past, there is an opportunity to change, but you need to be committed to change and you also need to have the education in order to be able to do that. So looking at the skill gap shortage we have at the moment with regards to management, you know, often enough we're finding ourselves in a position where you're managing a team full of people, not often through choice, and you haven't been given any formal training or education around how to have effective communication, conversations, performance reviews, listening non-judgmentally, non you know, all of these things that are critical to improving the culture within an organization. So. It's going to take a long while before we can start to address that, but there are committed individuals in, within the industry who, who want to lead by example. And I guess there's a kind of there's a generational thing as well. We're coming through, and we've got uh, the cultures in kitchens are automatically changing, naturally changing, they're evolving. Ruth, what are, what are your thoughts on that? It's kind of yeah, yeah. I think you know there is things like the Burnt Project that are really inspiring young chefs that are coming up through the ranks. So I think that was kind of a very much this happened to me, and so that's what I will do. Um, and it is the Burnt Chef and other projects like it that are kind of saying, actually, no, you can stand up and say that wasn't right and that you're going to do something different. You can break that mold. Um, you just kind of need people in the forefront to kind of inspire you to do that and say it's, it's okay to make a change. So I think the key element there is that kind of our history is, is something that we can definitely learn from, but it doesn't define the future. It doesn't define our next steps. And that, for me, is probably the most important thing. And I think I kind of... So I was in Birmingham last week at a uh, chef's forum and there was a, a chap there and I, I I spoke about this yesterday. So Gordon Ramsay and his idiot sandwich gif, you know, the, kind of, the two bits of red. Yeah. Honestly, it fills me with a level of rage. It's just, it's bad for the industry. It stops people coming in. And there was a guy there who was like, actually, I worked for Gordon Ramsay and he made me the man that I am today. And I was like, okay, cool. I, I get that you dig that and he worked for it. But what would you use today from what you, the way you were treated back then. They said, well, none of it, because I've learned, I've moved forward and I've evolved. And that for me is such an important thing in our world, full stop. So that kind of, the challenge of that perception of the industry is that kind of old perception, that's undoubtedly gonna have a huge impact on our recruitment moving forward, because every part of industry right now is struggling to, to draw people in. Uh, there are 1.2, 1.3 million open jobs in this country, 400,000 of those within hospitality. Ruth, um, what do you think, how do you think we're going to address that challenge? Do you think it's a new problem? Um, and do you think we've got the, the, the fighting skills to be able to kind of correct it and move forward? Um, yeah, I definitely think it is a new problem. Obviously, things have shifted. Um, previously, you know, there was probably maybe 20, 30 people going for the same job, whereas now it's completely the opposite way around and we're trying to get 20 or 30 people in that uh, just aren't there. So we do need to treat people fairly. I think when you become a head chef for the first time, you do realize you probably do go down the shouty route, but you're only going to shoot yourself in the foot because you turn around and there's nobody behind you. You know, you're the one then having to pick up all the slack. So, yeah. So what steps do you take to, to draw and recruit people into your business? What yeah. kind of processes do you have? Um, so we've recently changed to a four-day week. Um, so all the guys have three days off. I think that's really helped. Um, you know, everybody treats, even not just the way that I treat them, they treat each other with a lot more respect. They're more rested and nobody's kind of ten tense up and everybody's kind of on the same page. So that's one thing. Adam, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so... Um, with our opening the hotel over the last year, we found recruitment really challenging. 
especially during a pandemic, uh, that wasn't the ideal time to, to open a hotel. Hopefully, touch wood, we're through that now. Um, we, we, we looked at sort of outside the box, if you like, and I looked at um, taking on a different skill set than probably we traditionally would. So we've recruited some um, older ladies, uh, mothers, in fact, who are looking to support their uh, work-life balance. And for example, they work 10 till 2, which is not great hours traditionally for kitchens. Obviously, you're in early, lunch service, finish lunch, and then you have dinner service. I found those guys to be really productive between the hours of 10 and 2 because they come in after the schoolroom, they get the job done and then go home. And it enables us to, to look at other areas of production within our business uh, and not focus on specific challenges that we have. And we've also found that the two ladies in the kitchen have brought a different dynamic into the, into the sort of testosterone world sometimes if kitchens can find themselves. Much more calming influence across my brigade. Um, my brigade is much more respectful for the, the older ladies that are in the kitchen. So we found that something that really helps us balance the books, if you like, look at something completely different. And I encourage other people to do the same. It does make the world of difference. I mean, we, we were chatting beforehand and when I, the first very first pub I ran, I had a 63-year-old lady in the kitchen and she was amazing. She just, she just got it done. She didn't muck around. Her name was Glynis. She was ace. And if there was anybody in that team that I knew that I could rely on, it was going to be Glynis to get the job done. And she moved with me from that business to the next one. And I was really unsure that she should do that. But she was, she was absolutely positive that was the thing to do. And that impact that you had of kind of, it just dials down the kind of the, the kind of aggression, the ego, the kind of the drama that can be, yeah, that definitely. can come with men, if I'm entirely honest with you. I mean, I come with a degree of ego. There's no getting around it. I don't think a lot of us do. Michelle, have you kind of have you seen any differences in that way over the years? Most definitely, and uh, I think you know, successful businesses in our industry going forward are going to have to be very fluid uh, and are going to have to be adaptable, like you said, Adam. So take on people part time or different hours, different shifts. We have to be imaginative and creative with our workforce now, and be far more open. I mean, at, at Le Gavroche, for example, I've got several now that are only doing two shifts a week. Uh, rather than doing the full five shifts a week. So, and at first, you know, my team was saying, but why? This is ridiculous. Why, why? You know, it's not going to work. I said, of course it's going to work. If they're here even only for two shifts a week, but they get their head down and they do the job, why not? Then we've only got three shifts to fill. So you have to be adaptable and you have to be fluid. And I think that's super, super interesting uh, for the future, for me, I think, anyway. Uh, and not only that, but also finding different age groups. So, you know, you're talking about people of my age, <laughs> 60 plus, um, now reapplying yeah. for a job. And there will be a lot on the market, people of that age that need to go and work, but only maybe one or two shifts a week, or only a few hours a week. And we would be foolish in our industry to not take them on board, because they have so much to give. And likewise, 17-year-olds, school leaving age, uh, and I've taken two on at Le Gavros, which was pretty much unheard of, front of house, which I think is extraordinary. It's fabulous. And again, my team, my managers kind of said, chef, this is never going to work. I said, why not? Let's give them a go. They want to have a go. Let's take them on. One of them, he didn't have legal age to pour and serve alcohol. He's now a commis sommelier. He's been with me six months. He's climbing up the ranks. Now, if that isn't an advert for our industry, nothing is. The guy started on minimum wage and now he's on an assistant sommelier wage in six months. He's got, he was studying to do a degree in engineering and after three months he said, well, sod this, I want to become a sommelier. I want to run my own, rest, my own wine list one day. Isn't that wonderful? Yep, so absolutely. we should be as an industry embracing that and encouraging people to come forward. And I think as high profile chefs, we need to advertise that and shout that from the rooftops that there is a job for everybody in our industry. And I think that's a really key point. You know, we, we were having a conversation yesterday with Kate Nichols from UK Hospitality and that moment of recognizing the fact that there is no one demographic that will fill our kitchens, that will fill our restaurants, that's the most powerful thing that we can do as an industry. That's the most powerful realization that we can make and then just open ourselves up. And that point you make of kind of your management team going, no, it's never going to work. How are we going to do that? How do we get past that? How do we get past that feeling of the discomfort? Because that's what it is. It's discomfort that's driving that feeling. Chris, how would you kind of influence that behavior when somebody says, this is never going to work? 
Well, we do want to build a, built a non-profit based on that specific question. So I often joke and say that the Burnt Share Project should have been called, well, that's just the way things are, because that's what we hear all the time. I've done it this way because the person before did it this way. And I'm just repeating the same thing, like what you were saying in terms of management behaviors. And it is about using what both of you have suggested in terms of, firstly, will versus skill. Do they have the skill? Maybe not. We know that we're working with a workforce at the moment that doesn't have a great level of experience within hospitality. But do they have the will? Do they have the aptitude? Have they left the tech sector and decided that they want to be in a creative, diverse environment? In which case, are they really willing to apply themselves? Perfect. Do we have people who are, you know, perhaps they've gone off to retail sector, but want to actually keep the skin in the game and do service? They like the buzz of service. They're happy to do a Thursday, Friday, Saturday service, which covers the peak demand and reduces the demands on your, on your limited resources at this moment in time. There is no one size fits all, and each business is unique. Each person is unique. It could just be a case of actually ensuring that your team are limited on their hours. But in the similar vein, we're all going for less hours, four-day working week, you can have a happy and healthy culture with people doing 60-hour weeks. It's perfectly possible, providing everything else balances out, that you feel valued, that you feel like you belong, that you feel like you've got a say in your work, that you do get a work-life balance, that you are seen as an individual rather than just a number. So it's not, it doesn't always have to be set within this 4-3 working week and that's the way we have to go forward. There are many different ways of being able to balance it. But I mean, it's great to hear that, that we are now introducing quite out there ways of doing things. And it's about getting every last person on board. And now I've still met, even up last Sunday, I was chatting to a chef who does 100 hour weeks. They expect all of their team to do a load of hours, but they're not willing to give them any work because they don't trust them with the workload. Only they can do it the best. And you're thinking with that mindset, you're never gonna have a progressive business and your business will fail. Performance will suffer your attrition will suffer, and your P&L will ultimately lose out because you're not focusing on the core of your business, which is the people. Uh, yeah, it's just, that's it. That's absolutely it. Anybody who's been driven by the numbers on a P&L and making their decisions based around those rather than based around what is best for their people and their teams, in my mind, will always fail. That is just a reality of life. Um, so looking at some research from thecaterer.com, they were talking about the fact that 64% of job seekers think culture and values are more important than anything. That's huge. 86% um, of people said salary was important to them. I don't think we're remotely surprised by that, to be fair. Everybody wants a little bit more. The cost of living is going up every single day of the week. So we're all looking for more. And um, 52% want flexible working. That's, that's a whole lot of things that we need to be thinking about and considering. Do you think we can kind of live up to some of those expectations, Ruth? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, as Michelle was saying, we do need to be flexible um, in the hours that people work, you know, as well as hiring people that kind of gel together within your team, I think it's really important. You know, you have to think about that. These people are gonna have to work um, with each other for however many hours a week. Um, are they the right people to necessarily be working with each other? Um, and if not, can you move them somewhere else within your team where they're gonna benefit more? Adam, what do you think? Yeah, yeah definitely. There's a, there's a key point there that Ruth mentioned, and it's about necessarily not building a team of skills. It's about being, building a team of people and giving those people the skills. I think historically, to the point earlier on, right, we would probably build a team of skills. Who's going to do the larder today? Who's going to do banqueting? Who's going to do this? Plug the gaps. Those people are harder to find and less to find. So let's find the people first and build the skills for those people and then use them to plug the gaps. That's how I think is the best way to approach it. Especially with the younger generation that's coming into, into the industry now. They're more aware of what's going on. They're, more, they're, they're able to choose and slot into where they feel that they need to. And I think as employers that we need to do the same now. The old way doesn't work. We've got to move that forward. Michelle, I guess the, the reputation of your restaurant, it's, it's amazing. Your name, your family name comes with an expectation. And I guess for some people, they're going to live up to that expectation when they take the opportunity that you, you give them. And for some people, it could, it could weigh down on them as being a real kind of an extra challenge that they're maybe not ready for. How do you help? How can you help the people within your team to kind of manage that expectation? Um, well, 
Yeah, I, I, that's a very, very tough question because uh, I, I think it depends on each an individual character. Uh, but you know, if, if I look back at say, Gordon Ramsay famously worked for us for uh, three years, at two years at Le Gavroche, and then we moved him onto different parts of the company. But he worked every single section in Le Gavroche. And if he were here today and looking at me now, I would say it again. He is such a gifted chef. I mean, naturally gifted chef. Put him on the fish section, tie his hands behind his back, blindfold him, he will cook. And he will cook better than anybody that's ever walked in the Gavroche kitchen. Put him on the meat section, forget it. Absolutely forget it. He was a disaster. Uh, so it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the most gifted person or you know, somebody just fresh off the, um, uh, out of college. There are certain parts and certain areas that you just will shine in. And it's up to us as employers and as head chefs to find that to find what they are good at and, uh, and then make them shine. And it, it, it's, it, it, I think it's personally, I think it's simple, but in a busy kitchen, sometimes less so. But we have to, to, to progress, we're gonna have to m focus even more on that. Finding the ability in each and every individual and using that ability. And I think you're right, simple is not always easy. That's the thing, isn't it? You know, it kind of it can make perfect sense, but actually executing it is difficult. So, Adam, in your kitchen, how do you? What steps do you take to be able to identify those kind of particular skills? Because that's a really kind of key point that Gordon would be amazing on fish, but absolutely, he's going to fuck a steak right up. Um, I reckon he'd be offended by that, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think I would. No, I'm not. Probably not his audience. I'll be honest with you. How do you identify those skills with kind of within your team to say, right, you have got this? Well, luckily, my kitchens aren't probably as technical and as hard <laughs> as, as the Gavroche. But it's, it's, for me, it's empathy, right? It's understanding and working with those individuals. Um, so we work with fresh foods, so there's still an amount of skill that, that we need to deliver our products. And getting to know what makes them tick, I think, and spending time, which is, which is the difficult challenge, right? Because it's a busy kitchen, because there's lots of stuff going on, work-wise, uh, job-wise, getting to know someone, it, it can be quite challenging, and what makes them tick. And it might not just be food, it might be that they're part-time, or it might be that they're just doing, just doing it for some extra cash or, or a little bit of pocket money. But still understanding what drives them. So I like to spend time with those guys individually. Uh, I encourage my sous chefs and my leaders in my brigade to, to do exactly the same with them. So we had a young lad uh, from Portugal who, similar story really, we, we put him on the grill section or, or the meat and fish section, and he struggled but we proved him over onto Lada, which is a slightly slower pace, a little bit more time to just gather his thoughts, and he can control that section much easier than the grill section, because he's just, he's just that touch slower. So allowing him to calm himself down, and allowing him to give a little bit more confidence in what he's doing, and now he's flourishing, and now the question is, now do we move him onto the next section, because he's, he's boxed that. I think just understanding those little nuances of people, and a little bit of empathy is the key. It goes a really long way, and I think, what you're describing there is you're setting that person up for success. Now, and this is one of the key elements, I think, realistically. None of us are in a position where we bring someone into our business and we want them to fail. Every one of us brings someone into our team, to our, to our collective, and we want them to succeed. So giving them that opportunity to take a little step back and work in a slightly slower environment, massive, absolutely massive. Chris. Um, thinking about kind of diversity and inclusion, I think diversity and inclusion, we go to kind of to one area, we go to, we go to gender, we go to kind of race. But for me, there's a big element that's kind of, that's around disability. And I think I used to have a chef and he was um, profoundly deaf and, and it, it, it wasn't easy. I'm not gonna lie, it wasn't easy dealing with a chef who was profoundly deaf. He was great. He was an amazing prep chef and he would get the job done, um, but we had to make, uh, take steps to make sure that the environment worked for him. Do you think that's something that we can do kind of further and do more with that? Yeah, I mean, I'll ask, the, I'll ask a rhetorical question. When was the last time you saw anyone with an obvious disability work in hospitality? We are inadvertently cutting out a whole diverse, eclectic mix of individuals who are naturally gifted in various different ways just because they don't conform to what we would expect to be in hospitality. Anyone with an underlying mental health issue for 12 months or more is classified as disabled. Not many people know that. Four out of five people that we spoke to within hospitality have experienced mental illness during their career. 
So we already have disabilities within the workplace at this moment in time. One of our partners in Canada, she was telling me a story about um, someone who works in hospitality. He's a double amputee, no arms, no legs. And someone said to him, what are you working in hospitality for? What good are you in hospitality? And he said, I've been stuck in the lift for hours on end and had to rack my brains on ways that I could get out because I can't press the buttons. I'm a, I'm a natural problem solver. So yes, I can't carry loads of plates. Yes, I'm not able to move around quickly, but I'm an incredible ops guy. I can move your team around like a symphony. I can think of new ingenious ways to be able to allow your business to operate in a way that is smoother, more economical, that's better for people, that gives a better level of service. And so we need to get out of this, they either work front of house, back of house, housekeeping or maintenance in hotels and go, what are your skills? Who are you as an individual? What can you bring to my business? And look past the fact that it's any physical or mental disability. What do we think are the challenges to doing that? What are the challenges that kind of stop us from making that happen? Ruth, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I'll just quickly go back on what you were saying before. I've got uh, my kitchen porter. He's deaf and autistic. Um, but, you know, he's actually been a really great member of the team. I think the challenge is kind of uh, initially getting the rest of the team to, to accept that, you know, we're going to have to adjust, you know, for him. Um, because, you know, he's a great guy. He works really hard. He's very proud of his work. He's always sending me pictures when he's cleaned the fridge. He'll send me the pictures of them all, you know, and giving him that recognition that he deserves, like how we get recognition from the guests. Um, and I think it's really just making the rest of the team aware that we need to be flexible, just how we are with any other people. I was just going to say that I, I like the idea of us changing the way we work to inco in, in accommodate those guys or incorporate those guys into the team. I think that maybe that's the challenge, right? We don't, we're, not, we're not great at shifting the way we work sometimes quickly, like a big oil tanker. Sometimes it's slow for us to turn around because like you said, isn't it? we've always done it that way. So why would we change? But actually, that's the reason why we should change. And, and that is the key. It's, the effort comes from us. The effort comes from within. It shouldn't be about expecting uh, other people to kind of change who they are and what they're about. It's about us being reasonable and saying, well, actually, they could add some real, real value to our business. And... The, the, the diversity and the kind of the, the way it forces people to think and behave differently is quite an amazing thing. I, I mean, with, with Han, for sure, you know, just, I remember the first time his new head chef met him, he's like, how is this guy going to be any good to me? Just, I don't get it. I cannot, I have to go to him and get his attention. I can't just stand and scream at him from the cook line. I was like, hang on, bear with me. You cannot just stand and scream at him from the cook line. Think about what you've just said. Is that a good thing? And he's like, Take a second on it. Getting comfortable with that silence and asking those challenging questions is absolutely one of the key elements that we need to be doing. And I think you touched on empathy and empathy is kind of, it's one of those leadership traits that is so, so important, but it's not something that we work on necessarily and as, and as, and as strongly as we should do. What, do you, do you think we can do more with leadership training within kind of back of house environments, Michelle? Um, with disabilities, you just with over general leadership training for our chefs yeah well of oh, course uh, leadership uh, I, I think comes from your leaders so you, you have to actually show how it has to be done you lead by example uh, now in the past there were some very bad examples we need to now address that and be good leaders uh, and by that I mean show by example how it should be done how you speak to people employ more people with disabilities uh, I mean for example I've just come off Cheltenham last week uh, and one lady runs the pass and she is deaf she lip reads and for the, all the newbies that come they have to be told you need to communicate with this lady she's very important she runs the pass she's the boss here you need to come to the front and speak to her face on simple as that no need to shout no need to get angry or anything she will lip read perfectly and once you've told them that and once you've shown them that boom that's it and actually the whole tone comes down and everybody is far more respectful and service just works as a dream instead of shouting from the other side of the kitchen uh, I need table can move your ass do this they actually bother to go around and communicate properly so it is possible most definitely it's looking for the ability 
and, and that moment of making eye contact with that that person on on the uh, on the pass that's that's the moment you're actually making a connection rather than as you say standing across the room screaming at them i need this i need that there's no connection there in any way shape or form there's no relationship being formed there at all so that moment of actually saying right i'm going to connect with you here and right now and we are in this moment together and that's the deal adam just got a little bit uncomfortable there because i'll be honest we locked we locked for a second he's like okay kieran's coming home with me later i'll be honest with you it's been a long day but that's really important i think to be honest with you so when it comes to this this whole idea of leadership training for me is really important because i kind of think that we, I spoke to um, one of the major high street brands, uh, one of the biggest ones in the country, and they were talking about the fact that they wanted to introduce uh, leadership training to their back of house chefs. And they were kind of surprised by the fact that they wanted to do it, to be honest with you, which was odd to me. Um, but they kind of, they recognized it needed to be done. Ruth, what, do you think that there is something specific that we can do for chefs from a back of house view when it comes to that leadership training? Yeah, I think a lot of it is you, you often get asked maybe like what is your leadership style and I think actually that's a bit of a wrong question because you need to be quite flexible with your style depending on who you're working with. Um, so I think you need to appreciate that you know, how you lead one person is a little bit different to how you lead another depending on you know, how, they, how they react to whether it be, you know, I know some of my guys really like to kind of, you have to speak to them quite softly and you know, pull them aside and speak to them individually whereas some of the others kind of you need to be a bit not shout but be a bit firmer with your approach and a bit more direct um, I've got a German guy that works for me and he doesn't like it when I beat around the bush he's like if I'm doing it wrong tell me whereas others they might kind of it would really affect their service if I was so direct to them so I think you know really understanding each individual person it's really important I mean my business partner and I we have this uh, this rule if it's shit say it's shit we don't get to be sensitive with each other. We just get to be really kind of, this is the deal, this is what needs to be better, and we just do that. And we have that as a connection. When we bring other people into our business and into our, into our projects, we don't get to adopt the same standard with them because for them it just might be really uncomfortable yeah. and it becomes too much. Chris, what are your thoughts? I'm pleased you asked. Um, we actually have a solution. So we launched uh, last year a mental health and leadership diploma, which can be paid for out of apprenticeship levy and that was designed to fill the skill gap shortage for this particular thing. So for 12 months, we put people on an apprenticeship that teaches them the core foundational understanding of leadership, rotor management, change management, conflict resolution, performance reviews, all focused on well-being being at the heart of it. Um, we found great success. We launched our first cohort for 17 last month, and already the feedback's been great for that. So I do believe that it's a key proponent that we're missing Going back to what I was saying earlier, swift movement, high turnover, 135% is fairly average on, in the hospitality sector. If we provide people with the leadership skill sets that they need to design healthy rotors, the right form of communication and mentorship, and a whole host of other tools, we reduce our turnover levels, we create a stable environment that people want to be a part of, they're more productive within the workplace, then we're not putting ourselves under additional pressure and demand. I mean, it costs on average, we worked out between five and 7,000 pounds for every time a member of the team leaves within three months, and the average tenure in hospitality is 51 days. So we're literally walking on net operating profits of between two and 4% in the hospitality industry. You're watching your profit walk out of the door because we're not focusing on the leadership skill set. And so I, I, I personally believe it's a well, it should be the key area of focus over the next 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to what we were saying earlier on, like historically, we've never done that stuff. Um, so I sat on a board um, for People First where we started to build, um, similar to what Chris has done, um, uh, a level four qualification for chefs to become leaders in their business. And when we were sitting down to go through what we needed to add in and build, originally 90% of that was all culinary based work right so the skills to run the kitchen cook clean manage but very little was about leadership very little was about owning and building and looking after your team so we went back and added 50% back into things like conflict resolution uh, how to do appraisals which again historically we've not been great at if you if you look at the front of house though 
those guys have had that stuff built into their, their, their leadership and their programs a long time before us. So it's about us catching up 100%. Nice, love that. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of mentoring and, and I think it can be incredibly productive. Um, Michelle, from uh, uh, who would you say has been your mentor over the years? And I'm guessing it may have been a few different people over the years. Mm. Um, and what, it, what was the power and what was the influence of those mentors on your career? Yeah, well, I mean, it would be remiss not to, you know, mention father and uncle, um, you know, and they, they've been mentors throughout their life to, you know, to many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of, you know, young chefs over the years. Um, and, you know, it, it is leading by example. Uh, and I was fortunate enough, I did an apprenticeship in France and uh, my first head chef, pastry chef there, uh, was an incredible man. He was the first one in the morning, last one in at night. Very, very rarely raised his voice. When he did, you knew you, you, knew you were in trouble. But, it, but it, was, it was never a constant barrage. It was, okay, you did that wrong, and he would raise his voice. And, and the odd expletive would, have, would come through. But it was done, and it was over. And uh, no work, no job was too menial for him. If the kitchen porter didn't turn up, he would roll his sleeves up and, you know, do his his stint on the uh, on the washing up. So that that is what I mean by leading by example as well. You you can be a great manager by showing that actually, you know, all of the jobs in this business, and if need be, you can fill in where where it needs to. And so. I, I look back on my apprenticeship with great fondness and uh, I, I, you know, to this day still advocate that a great advocate for an apprenticeship. If anybody wants to come into this industry, I think it's the way in. But it, but it is so important to get a really good mentor. And I also say to young kids coming into this industry, if you're not happy where you're working, jump, go away, get out of it because there's a job opportunity elsewhere and there's a better boss around the corner. Yeah. Always, always. Adam, um, mentoring from your perspective, what, what does it mean to you? And it's, it's massive. It's a big thing for me. I've been really fortunate to mentor a couple of people in this industry. And uh, as long as people want me to, I'm going to continue to do it. Um, sometimes people just need to ask advice or they just need a bit of help, don't they? You, you know this more than me. And if you can provide a little bit of support to someone, if someone can pick up the phone or a text or, or whatever it is and just ask that difficult question without being judged, or look down upon, it's massive. So mentoring gives that ability to, to mentees that they can just pick up the phone or a text message and ask that question. And we have to continue that. We have to continue that, it's a must. And, and Ruth, from your perspective, is that a kind of, is that something that you've benefited, benefited from? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, during my apprenticeship, I had uh, John Williams um, and still now, you know, I know that I can pick up the phone if there's ever anything that I need to ask him whether it be about a competition or work or anything, he's all, for all the people that have kind of ever gone through that kitchen, he's always on the end of the phone. And it's just having somebody who is accessible. Um, you know, there's, he's a very busy man, he's got lots to do, but if you ever kind of went into his office and said, can you come out and show me how to do this? He was straight out and uh, you know, he'd bring his old knives out and he'd give you it and he'd be like, you use that. Um, so yeah, he was always there. Wonderful stuff, I mean, it's hugely powerful and I think the joy is for any of us who've been felt the benefit of a great mentor in the past, it then becomes much easier to say, well, actually, I'm going to pay that forward to the next generation because I think that is our biggest responsibility. It is to that next generation of chefs, to that next generation of front of house teams to ensure that they really do feel the benefit of all of our prior learned experience and actually really do maximize it. So I'm going to finish up with one last question. I'm going to leave room for, for a Q&A because I'm sure there probably is some questions. Um, and the last question is this, and it's kind of a big one. <laughs> How do we achieve a, a culture of excellence is a big drive. And whether, whether in your restaurant, whether in your kitchen, in your business, we all want to achieve excellence. But to achieve that culture of excellence, it's very then it can become quite easy for a whole load of pressure to become alongside that. How can we manage that? Um, is it possible? Well, I, I manage it through sport. So I, I, I think it's well known. I, I enjoy long distance running. Um, but um, I, I think even if it's only 20 minutes a day, I, I, it's just brilliant. 
uh, without your telephone, without your music or anything. It's 20 minutes that I sacrifice to myself. It's very indulgent, but it means you can get away from it all and, and literally just clear your mind. And I think that for mental health, it's so, so important. So it works for me, it doesn't work for everyone, I think, but, but for me, it works. It's finding what works for you, to be able to shut yourself away and just decompress. Uh, it's very, very important. I mean, I love a good run, obviously. <laughs> I love a good run to the fridge, let's be fair. Um, that's about as far as it goes. Adam, how are you going to do that? How are you going to achieve that sense of excellence without giving the burden of that pressure? Similar to Michelle, really, so sport. I, I used to cycle quite a lot. Unfortunately, with the hotel being really busy, I've, I've dropped off. But I feel the pressure because I've not got that little release valve, that an hour on my bike with just myself, no emails, no alarms, no text messages. Um, I've felt that pressure build up. So that's, again, I 100% agree it's, it's getting back to that. It's having that release valve. And also encouraging my team and my guys to take time off, days off recharging their batteries doing something out of the hotel out of the business is really important for me so it's got to be really important for them so when they are in they're engaged in what we're doing because they're not thinking about time off or they're tired or they need a break so that's why how i'm going to do it are you all good at doing that at managing that because i'm I, I try to do better when it comes to kind of managing the kind of the digital download and the information that's coming out all the time. Our phones are always bleeping with emails and text messages. And I know that kind of at about 4.30, I'm going to look at my phone and I'm going to have a, probably about 85 emails that I'm going to have to look at. There's a level of stress that comes attached to that, to be honest with you. How, how do you manage that within, within your life? Yeah, Ruth? I think um, for me, like obviously we've got that ultimate end goal, um, but setting yourself lots of little, whether it's daily or weekly goals, things that are manageable, things that you can do, you know, break it down and have those little marginal wins for your team as well you know they've got that thing that they're trying to achieve at the end of every week and it's just a little you know you have finished the week and they've achieved it it's a little pep thing but they're all working towards that end goal and if the little things aren't working and they're not right you know don't change the end goal but change the little things that you're doing to get there i love that and celebrating that success is just so important isn't it yeah definitely i think you know it does help with kind of morale in the kitchen you know it might just be a really tiny menial thing like somebody is who has to prep the fish every day maybe they're doing it quicker every day but not you know obviously not the quality is not deteriorating but just those little tiny things you know really do boost people and it just helps general morale in the kitchen and chris from your perspective how how are you doing what steps do you take to kind of to manage that pressure with the, the kind of the digital world yeah i mean it's it's tough and i'm i mean i've built an entire non-profit around talking openly about mental health issues I struggled. Back end of last year, I properly burnt out because even someone training teams around the country, telling people that they're not built like superheroes, and here I am going, it's all right, I don't need to eat healthy, I don't need to exercise, I don't need to see my family at all. Let's just keep going, because I'll be all right, I'm different. And then sometimes we get into that rut, and it's our brain, uh, it self-sabotages. It says, do you know what? You shouldn't eat that Mackey D's, but I'm gonna eat it because it's quick and easy and I just need fuel, right? So we all get there, but I think firstly having experience of it allows you then to recognize when you're slipping off the path. Friends, family, mentors can also recognize it in yourself and other people sooner than you know yourself because one of the stages of burnout is denial. And then you start doing longer hours and you work harder and you tell people that you're actually okay. But it's when people go to you, you're right, you don't look all right. For that to actually go, okay, what's different? What have I done? So for me, I took up swimming. And it was a great blowout for me. Um, I couldn't swim any more than two lengths without having a heart attack on the side. <laughs> but within three months, I can now swim, swim four kilometers. And it's a measurable success. And it's progress. And it's the same for my team. I've had to build a team in a very short period of time. We've got a team of eight now. And for them, I'm very conscious about ensuring that they know where we are currently, what our goals are, that they're making sure that they have the right level of time off and they've got my support both in work and out of work if needs be, but that they know at every step along the way what they do has purpose and has meaning, and that in itself helps build resilience and it helps keep us going towards excellence, if you like. Amazing, I love that. Um, and it's funny, you kind of, when you say about, we, we spend our time talking about doing the right thing. Uh, in January, I, I, we ran an event around wellbeing and we were there for about nine hours and I ate a donut for that nine hours. <laughs> 
spent time talking about well-being people. I was not taking care of myself. It's just not very smart. So I'm going to open it up to questions. Um, I'm sure my good friend Chris is kicking around somewhere with a microphone. Or maybe he's not. <laughs> I mean, he had one job to do. Can we all just give Chris a big round of applause? And I'm going to humiliate him. So, Charles, you have a question for us? Yeah, uh, definitely. Well, first of all, thank you to all the panellists for their uh, contribution on such an important topic. I wanted to ask you about the film Boiling Point, um, the Netflix film, which I'm assuming that most people uh, on the panel or in the audience have seen. How did uh, that make you feel when you watched it? Um, and is it good that that is the, the reality for some, for some people, for some chef entrepreneurs, and that is dramatised? I suppose the question that it left me thinking was, is that um, a reality that will inspire the next generation of chefs and front of house teams um, with that as you know, what's being dramatised on TV? It's a great question. Anybody got an answer? I didn't see it, so I can't. <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen it either, so I can't Ruth, seen comment. Ruth, um, I have seen it. Uh, it made me feel very anxious watching it. Actually, I was kind of on edge, and I didn't. I wasn't really enjoying watching it. I think it, you know, isn't really doing any favors for us trying to break the stigma. Or you know, if parents watch it, they're never going to want to let their child work in uh, hospitality. Um, but at the same time, you know, it did need addressing. So maybe it could have been done a bit differently. I think. Yeah, and it it had a really rubbish ending, which really annoys me when films have a bad ending. I I did watch it. I did watch the film, and um, as as you say, anxiety was the feeling. It was generally kind of that element with the the EHO coming through. I was definitely having anxiety (laughs) at the moment that the kind of the chef decides to just wash their hands in the food sink. You're like, what are you doing? You're a smart person. You know what you're doing. Why have you made this decision right here, right now, to do that? what I would say about the film Boiling Point is, yes, on the surface, what it actually did was identify a lot of the problems in traditional kitchens, but actually what it also did, if you look a little bit deeper, it looked at the relationships that we form within our businesses. It looked at relationships that we form within our teams, and that for me is a really important part and something that we absolutely should focus on more, if I'm entirely honest with you. It's very easy to, kind of, to get caught up in the, kind of the, uh, the, the, the drama element of it. But if you look at the kind of the connections, the empathy, the way that those people can actually connect with one another, that's the kind of life that I see in a lot of back of house and a lot of kitchens and a lot of restaurants, to be honest with you. So it's an interesting challenge. Would anybody else like to ask a question? No? Hello, Christopher. Move along. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, I've got a question from the financial angle Um, because we've got the VAT rate going back up, possibly up to 20% again in two weeks' time. We've got uh, minimum wage going up, national insurance contributions going up. So there's a lot of pressure on us as restaurateurs on our margins. Um, And of course, the workforce is getting, getting smaller. So in light of that, do we... Should we put our prices up as a way of mitigating that? Or is there another way? (laughs) Putting your prices up is the easy route. Uh, It's it's very easy to just say, okay, well, VAT is going up. I'm going to put my prices up X percent. Minimum wage going up. I'm going to have to put up. That's the easy route. Uh, The clever route or the the one where you have to actually be a, a good business with you know, have good business acumen, is to look how you can mitigate that. So, you know, there are, there are ways. Being more efficient at work is one of them. And very often with diversity, you are forced into looking at different ways of, you know, being more efficient. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, there, there is no easy route and I wouldn't advocate, all, you know, automatically putting your prices up. You may have to. But first of all, take the option of really digging deep into your business and looking where you can be more efficient because efficiency uh, is, is key. Yeah, and just to add to that point, unless you're on the floor within service, front of house or back of house, you don't know where your pinch points are. So do a stress audit, a stress risk assessment, which is a legal requirement to do, but not, no one knows about it. 
Do it with your team. Find out what it is that's elevating their stress and impacting performance. You'll find that often enough chefs are working with equipment that doesn't work, but they never say anything because it's the heat at the moment. They get on with it, they get it fixed, and they manage to move past it, but it's still broken and never gets fixed. Don't underestimate, and it's gonna require investment, and it might take a hit. You might even just break even, but start investing into resources, the equipment that you've got, trimming off the fat and making the business run effectively for your teams, and then long-term, you'll find that your attention will start to improve. There is no quick fix to this. The other thing from a psychological point of view is that we are terrified of putting our prices up because the customer's gonna leave if we charge 50p more for a steak, right? The reality is the fallout isn't that bad. We're just so ingrained in going, well, this is the way things are, and this is our customers, and this is what they've come to expect. But we pay for fuel, right? We go out now and we pay almost two pounds for fuel. We're still buying it. Yes, it's slightly different, but we've got to bear in mind, when I was a kid, we ate out once a month, special occasions, and you saved it for special occasions. We've now become a culture where we go out two or three times a week. Is that right? Is that wrong? I don't know. But ultimately, if you put your prices up and then you lose a small percentage of your customers in a worst case scenario, you're making more margin. Profit is king. Without doubt. And I think Thank you. To, to, to wrap it up, really, I would say that We've got some challenges as an industry. VAT is one of them. There's no getting around it. Uh, national insurance is definitely one. Uh, the, the lack of immigration, which would be a good solution to solving a lot of our problems. I mean, we've got a whole load of people from Ukraine who are going to be coming to this country looking for a, a safe place. There's going to be a lot of very talented people who are going to come from there uh, who are going to be available to work with us. UK Hospitality yesterday talked about a camp, uh, project that they're doing with the government to connect you with people from the Ukraine who are coming, who are going to have the skills that we need. I'd say check it out. But what I would say is we need to stand together. We need to have one voice. And when the things like the VAT, there is a campaign to say, let's take it, keep it down to 12 and a half. And let's maybe even be really brave, Rishi, and drop it down to 5%. There's campaigns out there. We just need to do better as a collective at sharing one voice and sharing those messages to try and stand together as a group of people, as an industry. Thank you all very much. Thank you to the panel. A big round of applause, please. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Burnt Chef Journal. If you haven't yet checked out the Burnt Chef Project website, then please head over to www.theburntchefproject.com. You'll find a whole host of resources, free access to our training app, as well as free support services, blog posts, our merchandise store, and also our ambassadors who are there to support you when you need it. Thanks again for joining us this week and I'll see you again soon.